0: The next three episodes are gonna be a real treat. I had the opportunity to recently interview Dr. Richard Howe of Southern Evangelical Seminary to talk about apologetics. What is apologetics, you may ask? It is simply giving an account and a defense of the Christian faith. There's so much going on in our culture, there's so much going on in our world, and things change so rapidly, and he has been a tremendous resource to me and a resource to many, and you're going to get to hear uh, my interview with him over the next three episodes in terms of how he kind of came to faith and came to apologetics and the need for apologetics and philosophy in the defense of the Christian faith. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I have a special guest today. I have Dr. Richard Howe of Southern Evangelical Seminary. He's the Provost, Professor of Philosophy and Apologetics, and the Norman L. Geisler Chair of Christian Apologetics. And I'm really excited to have him on today's program. So, Richard, welcome. Could you tell the people a little about your apologetics journey?
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Uh, I really appreciate being here. It's great to see you again. Yeah, I love to tell Absolutely. this story. I'll give you the short version. I wasn't raised in the church. It's, it's odd. Even though I was born and reared in the South, you know, stereotypically the Bible Belt, uh, I tease people, say there's more Baptists in the South than there are people, <laughs> I think, because <laughs> most Baptists are probably on more than one church role, and probably most of their dogs are Uh, on a church roll somewhere. So the odd odd thing is, uh, having been reared in that kind of part of the country with that kind of culture, I wasn't raised in the church, had a good stable home, loving parents, working very hard, great brothers that I grew up with, but I never heard anything about the gospel, didn't understand my need for a Savior, even though, interestingly, as far back as I can remember as a child, I never doubted the existence of God. So uh, God began to deal with me when I was about 14 years old, and that took a couple of years for me to get some clarity, God using people in my life. And when I was a 16-year-old, uh, I came to understand what Jesus had done for me, and I trusted him as my Savior. So now I'm I'm tooling along as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, end up going to college, uh, what they call back then junior college. I think they call them community colleges now. That sounds more grown up, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I studied music. I learned just just enough music to annoy everybody around me. I was a percussionist. I was a long-haired rock and roll drummer in the 70s. I needed to go off to college, you know, senior college, try to finish my bachelor's degree. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Knew I uh, I didn't want to do music, however. I knew that wasn't it. I took about a year and a half and said, I don't think I want this as a career. And somebody told me, you could go to college and actually study the Bible. And I'd never heard of such a thing. That was the most amazing thing. And it turns out, as many states, certainly in the South, various denominations have their sort of flagship college in a given state. So I went to uh, the flagship Baptist college in Mississippi, where I grew up, Mississippi College, wonderful Christian environment on the college campus to nurture uh, the Christian life as a student except the religion department. And if anybody knows anything about a, a recent Amer- uh, American church history, a number of denominations, including my own the Southern Baptist, were embroiled in a lot of controversy surrounding biblical inerrancy. Especially that time. Oh, yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah, no, it was a, the 70s were just really, really hostile. A lot of, and it wasn't the first time, interestingly, that this had happened in in, uh, even even in American history, but you go back to the recent European history with these struggles with the fighting between liberalism and conservatism and theolo- theology. So um, h- here I was. Now I don't I don't believe one can lose their eternal life. I know Christians disagree over that, but whatever we settle on that debate, uh, there is a lot of things you can lose, including your assurance and and if you're not careful, your intellectual integrity. So. It was apologetics that brought me back to a solid walk with God. And the difference was, before, I knew what I believed about various things. But now I came to believe more and more, or understand, rather, more and more of why I believed it, which is exactly what apologetics does. So the the takeaway from this is, I think a lot of people, a lot of your viewers are probably very familiar with how apologetics is so important with respect to evangelism as we share and defend the gospel to the loss. But maybe people might be surprised to discover how much apologetics can do for somebody who's already a believer. And I'm reminded in Acts when Apollos went to Achaia, and he said he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing that Jesus is the Christ. So you can just imagine Apollos coming onto the scene debating these Jews in front of these stumbled new Christian Jews <clears throat> and and they see the truth being defended. And that's what God did for me, brought a lot of people like Apollos into my life, people like uh, Josh McDowell or R.C. Sproul and most notably uh, Norman Geisler, who was the co-founder uh, of, of our seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary. So he became my mentor and almost like a second father to me And that that just gave me my love for apologetics. Now, it's a little bit different story if we want to get into it here before we leave as to how, okay, how does the philosophy fit into that? Uh, We'll we'll, we'll deal with that. I'll take a cue from you when you want the rest of the story, as they say.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's going to happen. And again, your story is not rare for that era. So many people had difficult times. The people like to talk about postmodernism, Well, modernism wasn't a big friend to faith either. I mean, you see a lot of difficulty in the 20th century in terms of being able to answer hard questions when the whole world is changing before your very eyes, and it's very disorienting. And I feel like experiences you've described happened a lot in the late 20th century period. But then you started to see a shift back towards orthodoxy and biblical fidelity. So talk to us about that journey and your experiences that you lived through in that transition.
1: Yeah, and by God's grace, the timing was just so wonderful for me in as much as right at the time that I was being stumbled in the late 70s is with the inauguration of what came to be known as the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And that was an ad hoc consortium of scholars from a spectrum of uh, disciplines, theology, philosophy, history, um, uh, language, and these kind of things, and they came together through ad hoc meetings over the course of about a decade, from around 78 to about 88, and they hammered out a handful, probably about nine volumes over that time, of various angles of analysis of the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, from the historical treatment of it, to a theological treatment, a philosophical treatment, all the way to dealing with hermeneutics and inerrancy, and then biblical application and inerrancy. So those... I mean, not not all of them came out at once, but the inaugural one titled "Inerrancy" that was edited by Norm Geiser was the one that I that first came on my radar screen. And one of the things I also discovered, Mike, which you know maybe you can chalk this up to just my naivete, having not been raised in a church, and now just barely trying to get into anything any semblance of academics as a college student, was that for the for that window of time when I was at Mississippi College, I I uh. I was almost coming to the conclusion that you either had to choose to be a thinking Christian and a liberal or a conservative Christian and a non-thinking. And if you will, sometimes people might use the word fundamentalist. Now, that term was a pretty pretty innocent term in the early 20th century. It eventually became it, it associated with, that, with a branch of Christianity that was anti-intellectual. So I thought that was the choices. And then I finally started discovering scholars— who were conservatives. And that was a really breath of fresh air for me.
0: It comes as a shock to a lot of people who are young right now, that the term fundamentalist just meant people who ascribe to fundamentals of the faith. And then evangelical was kind of an actually inclusive term so that different faith groups that agreed on a lot of things could still do ministry together. In these situations, you would just say, let's agree on the major things and let the minor things work themselves out. You've lived through some of those transitions And so that's why I really value your perspective. Now, when we hear the word inerrancy, if someone's never heard that word before, and it just sounds like a fancy word, would you care to elaborate on that?
1: Yes. And and in fact, it's funny because as Christians over the centuries have tried to make a definitive statement about the fact that we think the Bible is the inspired word of God and does not have any mistakes or errors in it. The way we've tried to label that has always changed because it keeps, the terms keep getting modified so much that very often you would find less than uh, conservative views of the nature of scripture. But the people say, oh, well, yeah, I believe the Bible is infallible, but I think it has mistakes. In it. And so we'd have to change. So over the course of years, you find, well, it's inspired. Well, that finally wasn't enough. So it's inspired, and it's not only inspired, it's verbally inspired, and then it's plenary, which means the entirely verbally inspired, and then became inerrant, and then became infallible, or maybe infallible first, and then inerrant. So you have the whole stream of words uh, only because you're trying to sustain the same definition, uh, even though the the uh, conversation forces you to have to qualify it more and more just to sustain the same definition. So, you know, just like the word says, inerrancy just means that you believe the Bible has no errors, and more narrowly, more, no errors with respect to the original writings. It doesn't mean that over the course of time some things have changed in the, in the uh, text, for example, but even the things that we can identify as what they call textual variants, especially in the New Testament, don't impact anything definitive about the Christian faith. Most of the variations in the biblical manuscripts are, are spelling uh, variations. Uh, so it <clears throat> doesn't really impact any any kind of doctrine.
0: But isn't it funny how critics latch onto that and they make it sound so much more salacious and like it's a much bigger deal than a simple textual variance? Uh,
1: no, like exactly. No, sometimes I think there are some scholars that give me the impression, or they give some the impression that they're almost deliberately misleading when you say things like there there is many there are more textual variants than there are verses in the New Testament, and that sounds like it's hopelessly flawed. But when you realize most of those variants are spelling, and then even even that, most of the spelling, because sometimes a spelling variant might change the actual word. Okay, fine. But most of the spelling variants is basically the Greek equivalent to our English convention of putting an N after the word A uh, before a noun that starts with a vowel. So we'd say a book, an apple. Well, if somebody yeah. said a book, a apple, you know what they mean. In fact, you couldn't even translate that difference if you had to take that and translate it into another language from English. You couldn't even translate the presence or absence of that in after the indefinite article. So that's called the movable new in Greek. Most of the spelling variations in the Greek New Testament are, are the movable new. Uh, and as we said, none of these variations, even where there are words that are present or absent, impacts any defining doctrine of the of the Christian faith. And very few have any kind of implication of even secondary uh, doctrines. So, yeah, that was a big thing to me because um, you know the scholars were really attacking. It wasn't just stopped at, okay, maybe there's an error here and there. Mike, they were, I mean, I was being confronted with Jesus versus Paul studies, where the idea right. was that Paul somehow hijacked the, the Martin Luther King Jr-esque message of Jesus as a social reformer and converted it into this hybrid of this forensic justification. That was the kind of stuff I was being confronted with. Not only that, but the JEPD, Documentary Hypothesis, Deutero-Isaiah, all these kind of things. And so uh, it made a lot of my friends uh, basically abandon their conservative faith. Some abandoned their faith altogether. And I had to fight through this stuff and... By God's grace, the timing was perfect with ICBI, and that was another reason why people like on R.C. Sproul or Norm Geisler came to me so much to me as, as mentors through their, through their apologetics ministries.
0: We're out of time, but we will continue this conversation with Dr. Richard Howe of Southern Evangelical Seminary next week in a three-part arc. We appreciate you joining us today, and we'll see you on our next episode of Lose Yourself. This has been Lose Yourself. Lose Yourself is a teaching ministry of Bible teacher Dr. Mike Cunningham. For more information about Mike and his ministry, check out his blog at loseyourself.life. Until next time, make it your ambition to lose yourself to Christ. Lose Yourself is a production of Key Radio.